Open Your Hymnal listeners. Welcome to the show. This is kind of a, a special show because while often Matt and I record our interviews uh, together, this is actually the first time that we are recording our spoken parts in the same room. Yeah, I this is it's freaking me out a little bit because I have to look at you. And it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot easier when we're over the phone and I don't have to make eye contact. Yeah, that's true because often when you're talking, I'm able to just turn the mute button on. <laughs> I'll notice now when you start doing other things. <laughs> and in addition to the fact that we're both in the same room, this is also the first episode that we are featuring a return guest with Father Michael Jonkis. Of course, we interviewed him several months ago about on Eagle's Wings, and he is our first uh, repeat appearance. Yeah, of course, so many of these composers have composed so many songs that are popular, that continue to get uh, sung in our churches today. So, um, you know, in the future, you're going to you're gonna continue to hear from people who we have already interviewed. If there's a song you're like, oh, I really wish that they had covered it, chances are we'll probably get there. And of course, by talking about different songs written by the same composer, we're able to pick up on different topics or different threads for each song as we continue to look at different aspects of liturgical music. So please open your hymnal to No Greater Love. Hello, my name is Mike Jankis. I'm a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. I presently work at the University of St. Thomas as Artist-in-Residence and Research Fellow in Catholic Studies. What I remember is that what I wanted to do was try to write an orchestral mass, and um, certainly nothing to rival the Viennese masses of Mozart and Schubert and the rest. But I wanted to see if it was possible to use a vernacular text and orchestral background and do something of, of beauty. Well, in the process, of course, you go through the what we used to call the ordinary of the mass parts, and then we had some propers. And so what was I going to write for communion? And that's how the song really got generated. It was meant to be a communion hymn to go along with... Uh, the orchestral mass of No Greater Love. And it ended up being, I think, rather pretty. So <laughs> I, I think that's part of the reason why I named it after that uh, particular communion hymn. So I do know that, that there are particular composers I listen to a great deal uh, to learn how they deal both with vocal and with um, orchestral writing. And in this case, I think I was mostly influenced by Von Williams, and I was especially influenced by uh, Britain, I think, in, in the uh, textual stuff. And the, Peter Grimes is a perfect example. Uh, I listened to, again, we'll, we'll speak vocally for a second, there's this glorious uh, quartet for women um, where it doesn't really fit the, the drama, but just for a moment, they pause and comment on what's going forward, almost like a Greek chorus. And the four voices just keep piling and piling on top of each other into these glorious vocal chords. And that's part of what I was trying to do in the, uh, in the vocal writing for No Greater Love. Um, the holy, holy, holy operates that way. There's a regular melody that the congregation can sing, but then the choir is adding all of this other stuff to it. 
As we're exploring this topic of orchestral masses, certainly as people are listening, they're thinking orchestra, maybe number of instruments, size of instrumental ensemble, and that's that's an important consideration. But beyond that, we're also looking at the way that these instruments or these parts are written and interplay with one another. And of course, Father Michael has an interesting approach to how he orchestrates all of these voices and all of these instruments. The <laughs> the orchestrations are basically just romantic. Um, I'm not in any way pushing the boundaries of the use of any of the instruments. Um, so, you know, woodwinds, brass, strings, um, and I tend to use each of those as a particular choir. So a, a string choir makes its comment, the brass choir makes its comment, and you bring them all together at, piece, at, at times of climax. Um, but you also let them make their own comments during the course of the of the piece. So often when you see uh, liturgical music uh, for the instrumental parts, it'll say maybe for C instrument or, you know, something generic like that. But with Father Michael's music, he often specifies the instrument that he intends, especially in something uh, as complex as the No Greater Love uh, mass setting and uh, the song. And it shows a depth to the approach that he has towards scoring for the instrumental ensemble. This goes beyond just the idea of arranging song, but he's very much conceiving and scoring this, this piece much like we would have thought uh, of Mozart and Haydn and Vivaldi. He understands the timbre and the different ways of using the instruments. When you do it exactly as written, you know, its, it's best parts really shine through. So that that's interesting in a, a musical way, right? If we consider some of these um, more more classical mass settings that we've mentioned, like the Schubert or a Mozart mass setting, etc. But for for this song and for this mass setting, Zach, I mean, its its primarily use was to be liturgical, right? It wasn't meant to be just something you'd hear in a concert setting. So. So the orchestration you're talking about sounds lovely, and I get the musical impact. But, like, what are what are your thoughts about how that promotes a more effective liturgical piece? I mean, again, if this is supposed to be something that's animating animating people's prayer, okay, fine that he writes the oboe part in a certain way or whatever. But but what's the what's the liturgical payoff? Well, I think the genius to this music is that while he's exploring all these different avenues of creativity. Uh, the melody itself that the assembly is responsible for singing is still singable. It prays well. It lays well. Um, and then the instrumentation serves, uh, I think he often says, as a commentary to what the assembly is singing. It never gets in the way. Uh, so the assembly is still able to sing on in ways that they would, would sing any uh, traditional hymn or anything that they're familiar with. Um, and so this or, this attention to orchestration is is a really nice bonus. I think it helps to elevate uh, what the assembly is doing, what the choir is doing. Most of the, I think, really successful um, individual pieces that have uh, entered the repertoire, by and large, don't do multiple choral versions. But I've always liked, each time the refrain comes back, that there's maybe not a, a shift in the harmonic language, 
but there will be a revocalization of it. So typically for me, I'll start with everyone in unison. Second time the refrain comes around, two-part women, men. Third time, maybe the men singing in unison and the women doing a two-part descant above it and a four-voice four setting. And I, <laughs> Michael Silhavy of GIA uh, strongly suggested that I put a note in the composer's notes saying, if your choir finds it too hard to keep learning all of these different harmonizations, just choose one of them because that'll always work and it'll it'll just be fine. Uh, you won't you won't develop the complexity of the composition, but most of that's going to be lost anyway if the congregation's really really singing its part. So I knew from the beginning that it'd be very very rare that the full orchestral version of it would ever be done. In fact, I am kind of amazed that GIA even tried it as an experiment. Uh, but they had already done some of um, uh, Alexander Pelequin's uh, masses, which were orchestral in their, their conception. But no, I, I assumed that it would be um, done with a fairly thick organ reduction or then with the piano uh, carrying most of the orchestral stuff and maybe one or two obligati instruments uh, doing their thing. But no, I, I, I assumed that it would not always be done orchestrally. Earlier in our conversation, Zach, you mentioned that what Father Michael does with this piece and this, you know, orchestral mass tradition is to really sort of go back and, and reclaim this approach, some style considerations. And one of the things I like about this piece is that there's another sort of tradition or style that's wrapped up in this. If you look at the verses, they they are metered, but really they're drawing back upon our chant tradition and a sort of chanted tone tradition that, that maybe people don't necessarily notice when they sing this song. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Yes, exactly what it was. Yes. Yeah, it's a pure chant tone. And the advantage was uh, looking at uh, uh, John chapter 15, it's almost word for word, uh, the, the text. There's very little paraphrasing in it at all. But like the Jelano Psalms, the pulse is what uh, made it work. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Well, that pulse is, is clear, but then you get, you did not choose me, but I chose you, chose you, and appointed you, so you may go forth and bear fruit. Well, you may go forth and bear fruit <laughs> uh, takes a, um, a much longer time to sing, but with that pulse there, it really works. Earlier this year in the other podcast that I host, the Ministry Monday podcast for NPM, uh, we featured an episode that 
uh, focused on chant and specifically on the English chant tradition that came out of Vatican II. And we we featured a program from St. Meinrid's Arch Abbey and the late Father Columba Kelly. And what I took away from that episode, one of the things that stuck with me is Father Columba talking about the importance of chant and matching that with scripture. Because with chant, it doesn't matter how many syllables you fit into a phrase, that sort of thing. And so he, he referred to it as drinking God straight because you don't have to edit or adulterate any of the scripture to fit a meter. You can really just sing it as it's written and it's sort of pure. And I get that sense with this piece, the verses of No Greater Love, because as Father Michael mentioned, he used that chant approach. But when you match that with this gospel passage from John, it really feels like we are drinking that gospel straight. I think in some sense that is correct. Like, you know, with with not having to adapt words to fit a certain rhythm or meter, we get scripture in its totality. However, as soon as you set any text to music, you are imprinting some of your personal thought about what that text means, how it should be prayed, um, how it should be felt. Um, and so in a sense, there is, it's hard to escape um, putting, you know, some sort of influence on how people are going to receive the text once you make that decision to set it to music. This was also the time when we were really beginning to talk about inclusive language. And that opened up such a, a can of worms that we still have not thought that through. We haven't found a way to, to um, make the various constituencies, say, of Roman Catholics, uh, able to, to sing these songs together. Uh, there will be some very strong people who want to eliminate any masculine reference. So uh, there is no greater love, says the Lord. No, Lord may not be used. Um, then what do you do? <laughs> there is no greater love, says our God. Well, that's possible, but this is God in Jesus. So it's not just the triune God. It's a very specific, it's the incarnate Son of God. Well, anyway, I'm not going to get off on that. So on the one hand, we were really struggling with uh, inclusive language material, and I basically threw up my hands and said, no, I'm going to use one of the approved uh, translations, you know, even though I can go back to the Greek and do it myself, but I'm going to use one of the approved translations and just set that starkly. Now, meanwhile, of course, I'm very influenced by uh, Tom Connery and Bernard Heubers and Hub Oosterhuis. Uh, I've never pronounced his name correctly, but uh, and the extraordinary um, uh, what I would call liturgical poetry that was being developed. Uh, which was more than a scripture paraphrase and more than a kind of bare homiletics. Here's the point or the moral of the story. But these magnificent, uh, evocative texts, uh, terrifying, frankly, some of them. There's a song called uh, Song at the Foot of the Mountain that I remember being just blown away by. 
because it it took the very strong hymn tune, dum bum 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 bum, and then the congregation sang, "You not up there enthroned on high, you no voice that breaks in cloudy sky, what word could ever adore you?" <laughs> and I have to say that 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 spirituality was very attractive to me, still is, but I don't know that it could. Um, it could bear the weight of an entire community's prayer. Uh, it's, it's in some ways a very specialized uh, kind of prayer. I, th- I think Jean-Leno is the major influence on that, simply because he had the absolutely regularly recurring pulse. The Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I shall want. Fresh and green are the pastures where he gives me repose. That was his great contribution as he read Hebrew poetry and knew that the poetry had this regularly recurring pulse, but infinite number of syllables possible in between the pulses. Um, No other writer, I think, has created psalm tones like that. That's pretty unique to Jeleno, although other composers have used his pattern later on. So let's go back then, Zach, to what you mentioned uh, a little bit ago, this whole idea of even if we are setting scripture, approved text, not changing a word from what comes out of the lectionary or out of the Bible, that by setting it musically, we are imprinting something on our understanding or experience of that of that text. I, I think that's interesting now because when we look at No Greater Love and then you know, by extension, this full mass setting, I know that Father Michael got some comments and initially when it was first released in the late 80s about this piece being pretty theatrical. Yeah. And of course, we're not talking about theatrical in the sense that, you know, there are song and dance numbers through the Eucharistic prayer. Of course not. Um, but in that uh, vocally, it's very demanding of the presider. Um, as we mentioned before, the instrumentation is very rich, uh, orchestral in nature. But herein, again, I think lies the genius of, of this piece is that while there is much to experience by doing the full arrangement, you can still do a simpler version. Like No Greater Love still works very well with either just cantor and piano, cantor and organ, um, just assembly, no harmonies. Um, this is a tradition of, of writing that we also see in Marty Haugen's great Massive Creation, where you can do it with your folk group. You can do it with um, organ and orchestra, brass and timpani. Uh, nothing is taken away, uh, but I think, you know, Often the way that we hear something first often shapes our first impressions, and I think that's that's where some of this feedback comes from. 
Um, the other response was a review that appeared in worship, and I'm trying to remember who the reviewer was. He's a priest, Ed McKenna, uh, and Ed reviewed it and was kind, but the great line from him was that the Eucharistic prayer had more to do with Parsifal than it had to do with the Roman Rite. And I thought to myself, wow, you actually thought I could write like Wagner? <laughs> you have to be kidding. Uh, and on the other hand, where he was kind of gently saying uh, that it was probably too theatrical for, for uh, real worship usage. Father, all-powerful and ever-living God, we praise and thank you Jesus Christ our Lord for your presence and action in the world. In the now I will admit when we first interviewed Father Michael about this song and as I've been listening to it and considering it for this episode, I was not familiar whatsoever with the fuller mass setting that the song was originally composed for. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that some of our listeners, as you're hearing this episode, um, maybe didn't realize this song was a part of a mass setting, and you've heard us talk about its orchestration and the theatrics of it, and you've heard some excerpts of things. Before anybody gets excited about running out and using this mass setting in their parish, of course, we know that we can't because the translation of the words that we speak and the words that we sing at Mass changed, you know, about eight years ago or so in 2010. And when we look at these, you know, major Mass settings like No Greater Love or the Schubert Mass setting or uh, Alexander Pelequin's orchestral Mass settings, they're, they're lovely and beautiful and were written for worship, but now, of course, we're no longer able to use them in our regular Sunday liturgies. Yes, of course. When the when the new translation came through, many of the the more popular mass settings uh, were revised to include the new text. But we did lose some, and it gets me to thinking. You know, so often many of these great classical mass settings that Father Michael uh, has referred to often occupy space in our concert halls and. So I think of a mass setting like No Greater Love. And I wonder if, you know, even though we've moved on from using that text in our liturgies, the music is still so beautiful that um, in a non-liturgical setting, in, in somewhat more of a performance setting, I, I really feel like this mass setting could hold up in that kind of venue. I think you have exactly correctly, and I also probably didn't um, quote him well, because he wasn't talking about the entire service, and he wasn't, I don't think he ever uh, specifically talked about uh, No Greater Love, the peace. Uh, his concern was the Eucharistic prayer, and I, I confess that that's the one I worked hardest on, the one in some ways I'm most proud of, uh, the one that we can never hear because the texts have now changed and uh, 
I grieve that in a way, but I also, you know, I'm a servant of the church. So if it goes into oblivion, it goes into oblivion. And now here's a recording of No Greater Love in its entirety.
It was not you who chose me, it was I who chose you, chose you to go forth and bear fruit. Your fruit must endure, so you will receive all you ask the Father in my name. Now we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. GIA Publications invites musicians of all backgrounds to attend the 2018 GIA Fall Institute. GIA is bringing together leaders in music, worship, education, and formation to offer an assortment of workshops in pastoral music, leadership, liturgy, theology, and spirituality. Presenters include musical luminaries like Ola Guillejo, James Jordan, David Haas, Father Michael Jonkis, Lori True, and Zach Stahowski. It's the GIA Fall Institute, October 11th to 13th in Chicago, Illinois. For more information, visit giamusic.com. And now it's time for another edition of the Open Your Hymnal playlist. This is the part of our show where Zach and I are able to pick additional songs to play for you um, drawn from the conversation in today's episode. So, Zach, why don't you kick us off with your first selection? Well, I really liked what Father Michael said about being influenced by the text writing of Tom Connery and Hub Oosterhuis. So to give you a little sample of that, I chose uh, the hymn, What Is This Place?, by Oosterhuis with music by Bernard Hybers.
So that's my first pick. Matt, what do you have for us? Well, I decided to go with the same text setting. So the Gospel of John, chapter 15, um, provides the basis for the text for the song, No Greater Love. So I've chosen another setting of that same text, this time by the composer Tom Franzak. So this is Tom Franzak's song, Live On In My Love.
For my next pick, I wanted to show another facet of uh, Michael Jonkis's compositional style. Often we associate him with uh, the sound of On Eagle's Wings, but uh, this next song I think shows a, a different approach to writing. Um, I've been really excited about it. It's called Mary's Song.
So for my final pick, I've chosen something that's kind of a twofer. Um, first of all, this is a song that has a similar approach to that, um, the approach that Father Michael used in writing No Greater Love. It's got a refrain and then more of a chanted style verse. And it also includes music written by Father Jeleno, who is mentioned in our conversation with Father Michael. So this is Rory Cooney's setting of the song Heart of a Shepherd.
Thank you for listening to Open Your Hymnal, and special thanks to Father Michael Jonkis for speaking with us. No Greater Love is published by GIA Publications. The recording you heard was released by GIA on the album No Greater Love. Links to this song, the other songs you heard, and additional resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. Production assistance and support for this episode was provided by GIA Publications and by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and Google Play. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Matt Reichert. And I'm Zach Stahowski. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.